0: You don't have <laughs> to do that. So <laughs> can you can just kind of go up and down.
1: <laughs> okay. Alright, if you want to advance the slide, just click this button to advance it yeah.
0: If you want to go backwards, <laughs> you actually <coughs> have to stop backwards. Thank
2: you. Hi, guys. I'm Cherise. So um, for the questions, I figured I'll just start with someone and then mainly the residents and then you guys can just continue on. Pick the next person. And we'll go over questions and answers. So um, Wes.
1: Um, so which of the pollen trauma <laughs> patients classified as having a low probability of C-spine injury? Um, a, a 21-year, do you need me to read the choices, or do you um. think everyone's capable? <laughs> they all have no neck tenderness, and the question is what else? Yeah, so right. a 21-year-old who was intoxicated after an MVC. a uh, 24-year-old who's got left lower extremity weakness, um, a 32 year old with a through and through lip lack 48 year old with a uh, right shoulder dislocation an 82 year old with a left femoral neck fracture um, so I think uh, I think this one I would say I would Go with uh, D, probably.
2: D, is that your final yes. answer? Yes. <laughs> Let's see. Ah. But good, good guess. So, thirty-two-year-old woman with no neck tenderness and a through-and-through through lip lock after a motor vehicle crash. So, the basis of this question came off the landmark Nexus article. If I can, <laughs> there we go. So, Nexus was a simple decision instrument for um, com- clinical criteria developed. It was stood for National Emergency X Radiography uh, Utilization Study Group. Um, it was used to basically identify patients um, of low probability of having C-sign in- injury. Um, you had to meet five criteria to classi- be classified as low risk. One, and you had to meet all five. They had to have no cervical midline tenderness, no focal neurological deficits, full alertness, no intoxication, and no painful distracting injury. And out of the five choices that were given, a through and through lip block can probably be classified as not a painful, distracting injury. So that was the only one. Um, I went back and looked through this article and they had an interesting table I just thought I'd share that might pertain to us, which um, basically put on their documented cervical spine injuries that categorizes as not clinically significant, uh, spinous process fractures, simple wedge compression fractures, that loss of 25% or more vertebral body height, isolated avulsions without associated ligamentous injuries, Type one, odontoid fractures, which we learned today, and plane fractures. The one just at the tip. Yes. Um, osteophyte fractures, not including corner or teardrop fractures, and injury to the tubercular bone and a transverse process fracture. So, next question. So, so
0: the and one of those five original five choices had a neurologic deficit. So, once you've got a neurodeficit, deficit, it doesn't matter what you're. Yeah, the one lady had light yeah, weakness. Number B. B, had the light weakness, so that it's probably not her cervical spinal. Cord. It could be any time there's a neurologic deficit, you've to you have got even cervical spine. So that's why she falls out. And the rest of them are just painful for intoxication. <coughs> so what? <West, coughs> Keep
1: going, Austin. A uh, thirty-five-year-old man.
3: A 25-year-old man who came to the hospital for treatment of cellulitis was uh, mistakenly given one gram acetaminophen twice in a period of 30 minutes for fever control, which of the following describes the physician's best course of action. It's not high enough level necessarily to be
2: toxic, but I guess probably, I'm going to say D. Or not. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer is C. Inform the patient of the mistake and reassure him that no harm was done. Um, basically this just goes back to kind of going over disclosure of medical errors regardless of intended or non-intended. Um, So they say here that uh, unintended medical errors and their subsequent outcomes have to be reported to patients and we have an ethical responsibility to do so. Um, In addition, the nurse should also probably fill out an incident form. And in this specific case, over-medication of one gram of Tylenol is not considered to cause toxicity, so there's no real reason to obtain levels or treat the overdose. Um, And no harm was anticipated with this medical error, so we probably don't need to go ahead with risk management involvement. Or is that iffy? principles are right that number
0: 1 unless you take at least at least uh, 7 grams of Tylenol That's the only part you would differ. Was the risk management? Uh, there should be an incident report. So uh, uh, choice of C and D uh, had elements back. elements of being correct. C was good. C, no, C, C and B. C, C and B. C B. C C and B. B. Have elements of being um, correct. They the risk management is not so important, but the incident report is very important. If Dr. Burns were here, who chairs the hospital pharmacy and therapeutics committee. They are very intent on capturing all of the medication <coughs> errors they speak to system problems that lead to giving double doses of medications or admitting dose of medications, and that is supposedly 8 to 10 percent of all hospitalizations in America have medication errors, either missed doses, late doses, or double doses, or missed doses, or whatever, and in order to get to the systems that promote patient medication safety, you've got to have a, a database of incident reports to do an analysis to see what's causing these to happen. You can say absolutely fill out an incentive report so it gets into the pool of medication (coughs) adverse events.
2: Next question. uncensored What they said was acute mesenteric ischemia should always be considered in an elderly patient who has abdominal pain that's severely disproportionate to the physical exam. Um, it's usually very poorly localized and diffuse because it's visceral in nature. It's often described as intestinal angina because it's postprandial, usually, and is generally refractor- refractory to narcotic analgesics. Uh, they often have a history of cardiovascular disease, including MI, AFib, or CHF, and it can be either acute or chronic. I mean,
0: wh- how do those play into mesenteric?
2: We also want to say SMA occlusion from either the thrombus or embolus occurs in about 50% of cases. Um, non-inclusive mesenteric ischemia accounts for a significant number of the remaining cases. Though an MI is unlikely with a patient with abdominal tenderness, absence of chest pain or associated symptoms, an EKG should definitely still be obtained, especially in his age group and comorbidities. Um, pancreatitis is unlikely in a patient without history of alcohol abuse mm-hmm. or predisposing medical conditions. And a, uh, appendici- perforation of the appendix must be considered. Um, however, peritoneal, peritoneal signs may not always be present, but in this case, patients complaints for severe diffuse pain. So that would be less typical of an appendicitis, uh, appendicitis or perforation of an appendix. And of AAA, the classic signs of the AAA, including pulsatile mass um, and hypotension, are not there. So this indicates usually another in diagnosis in terms of the of They didn't the give us a blood pressure though, did they? This, um, let's see. Mm-hmm. They said a biocidal is only for mild tachycardia.
0: So there's a lot of information in here. It's easy to get lost. <coughs> but the bottom line is, for our test purposes, two things are going to be called pain out of proportion to exam. Esenteric ischemia, and what's the other thing that's mm-hmm. classically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fasciitis? All right, so if it's an extremity, and the limb looks okay, but it's terrible pain, it's necrotizing mm-hmm. fasciitis. If it's belly pain and it's soft and non-tender, no peritoneal signs, but severe pain in the test question, it's mesenteric ischemia. What about compartment syndrome? Um, well, all right, necrotizing fasciitis, compartment syndrome are sort of the same kind of idea where you've got deep muscle. So yes, deep muscle involvement that doesn't <coughs> manifest on the surface. Mm. So Can for I this make s- one comment. You know, when you see this question, it's a bear.
1: The easiest test-taking skill is look at the answers, and then you go, "All right, I'm gonna." And your mind will automatically go, "All right, abdominal pain disproportionate to exam findings." You know, so you see the possible choices. You know, it's a, it's like, "What is it like the likely diagnosis?" Is the last question, or the last sentence, and you see the answers. So, from a purely test-taking standpoint, it's easier to do that, and then go back up to read the question. Otherwise, you just get lost
2: where's this question yeah. take so for the sake of time i'm just going to call on the residents cuz we only have about another 20 minutes and, um, so sam yeah. is i can be sam since i'm oh. sam no there's no sam here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'll be sam though <laughs> Hopefully. since you. i was I, sam
3: I, earlier so <laughs> i'll go <laughs> all right let's do that. okay which which of the following statements regarding ingested foreign body is correct a, all children with suspected foreign body ingestion should undergo x-ray. That sounds good to me. Uh, Ipigat can be used, that's wrong. Uh, meat tenderizer can be used, no. Uh, most common site <laughs> <laughs> of the foreign body if you pediatric patients is the thoracic inlet. questionable. Optics longer than five centimeters and wider than two centimeters should be removed before they pass through the stomach. I'll just say A, personally. <laughs> no ease of an answer as well.
2: <laughs> so, uh, swallowing <laughs> foreign bodies can be life-threatening. 80% are in pediatric <laughs> patients. Most pass spontaneously, but 20, 10 to 20% require some type of intervention. In general, they say if, if it, lo- it lodges in the esophagus, in pediatric pa- patients it tends to be in the upper esophagus versus adults it tends to be in the lower esophagus. And in children, if you have a foreign body in the esophagus, it most commonly will lodge at the cricopharyngeal narrowing at level C6, not at the thoracic and left. If it passes the pylorus, it generally is, tends to do okay unless it is um, longer than five and wider than two uh, because these can, in 10, 15% cases, cause intestinal perforations. <coughs> and in 35% of pediatric patients uh, with lodged esophageal foreign bodies, they tend to be asymptomatic. Some, it's like a, some say, some experts recommend x-rays to be formed on all patients, with, uh, all children suspected of swallowing a Body, others say don't, so I don't know what the consensus is on that. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I would get it on everybody. So I have
0: to <laughs> pick t- a, I guess so it's Because yeah. the five point right. by two, how do you mean they don't tell you how know, right. like big the kid is? Yeah. If it's a, you know, Didn't say a human 13 year old, old then maybe it's going to pass.
1: How are you going to find out if it's five by two if you don't image them at all? Yeah. I that's where you scope them
2: take it out. Yeah, yeah. Test purpose wise. Are you trying to get you to go to scope?
0: first and skip the x-ray because it wastes time, is that what you're saying? No, no. Well, if it's in the stomach, it's almost always going to pass. So yeah. Yeah, it really. Button batteries in the esophagus, you got to take out. Point in the esophagus, you got to take out, too.
3: But even if it, so you, you get like a magnet, if you get two magnets or a battery in the stomach,
0: you, you know, the magnets, if the magnets are, um, first of all, magnets is unusual second of all <laughs> it's pretty yeah. testing though if you, you, you swallow to if you swallow two magnets and they stick together then there's no problem if you swallow two magnets and they're separate somehow then the possibility exists that they could come together in adjacent mm-hmm. loops to a small bow persistent came yeah
3: and the other one was so a uh, battery a button battery the button battery
0: you use socket. that you always take that probe. okay what happens if you pass what happens if it if it's passes if it, if it, if it, if it passes in the stomach it should just pass. Unless it causes abdominal pain. If button battery causes abdominal pain, you're supposed to operate on it. Button battery goes (coughs) to the stomach, it's gonna pass out the bottom. If it's stuck in the esophagus, you gotta take it out. But if it's stuck in the esophagus, or if it's in the esophagus? Well, if if you're seeing it It in the esophagus, then by definition it's stuck. Because if they got to you, took a picture, and there it is. (laughs) You gotta take it out. Stuck meaning it found in
3: the esophagus. The Button battery shouldn't be in the stomach for longer than a few days, though, because the crimping can be eroded, and stuff and it can leak out eventually so they need to follow up and get repeat x-rays okay and they don't have to stay where the school started there or be admitted that. okay i
0: mean a lot of these questions are bizarre they sometimes have more than one <laughs> answer they're not so well they're not questions that are of the quality that would actually make it to an exam because you could pick them apart too well easily but go ahead yeah. so sometimes we're going to just think about what's right? I'm sorry, yes, it's pier, pier 7.
2: seven. Yeah. So, Rashmi, would you do the next one? Oh, yeah. Sure. So the picture that they provided is pretty poor, so um, I have an extra one coming up right afterwards. So the actual picture is this and that. <laughs> there are better pictures to use. <laughs> well, imagine if <it's> this is the trunk. Yes, it's supposed to be, but it was just a really poor quality image. It was the best I could do. So I think the picture is <laughs> so what they say is that this is obviously herpes zoster infection um, is due to the reactivation of varicella. Um, typically appears as un- painful un- unilateral cluster of clear vesicles in one or more dermatomes. Um, key risk factor for development is advanced age, greater than 75. And what they're basically asking for, for the prodromal symptoms, what they say are headaches, photophobia, malaise. Uh, abnormal skin sensations that arise one to five days characteristically before the rash appears.
0: I've never ever seen photophobia and headache as pro-prompts of the disaster.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, so. we You're not going to make a diagnosis until <laughs> the you see the characteristic <laughs> rash <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So who cares? Right. What? So sure. Yeah, but actually, one thing—one thing, one thing yeah, that is worth, <laughs> worth uh, <laughs> emphasizing on the pictures, if you pictures you found, yes,
0: go back to pictures you found. So even though <laughs> go back one more. I, I, so yeah, even though these are, are home, yeah. you'd expect yeah. them to stop at the yeah. midline, but sometimes uh, they don't, because uh, there is a little bit of cross innervation past the midline. So if it goes a little bit across, this is actually a little more than I'd expect across the midline. Obviously, he's got about a T6 or 7 or so, maybe more than one dermatome coming across, and it extends past the midline. So in other words, don't exclude herpes zoster just because it passes the midline by a couple of centimeters. It's still zoster, and the nerves go across, crisscross. But if you see herpes zoster in more than one dermatome, think immunocompromised or HIV, consider, certainly treat them, but consider talking to somebody from infectious disease or internal medicine, because it may not just be uh, zoster, which happens sporadically out of the blue to otherwise reasonably healthy people, but it could be lymphoma, leukemia, you know, some tumor that they don't know about, something else going on behind the scenes if it's multidermatol. So, sorry for the question. That's
2: going to be an annoying one. Okay. 54-year-old woman with grade disease, delirium, dyspia, soiling, pulse rate's high, temp is high, setting 91%, she has atrial fibrillation without evidence of ischemia. Okay.
3: So it probably should be
0: Also got a uh, fever. I think. Don't Eve. tell us yet. I also. Clearly, the propranolol is going to be first. First, yeah. That's, that, so uh, the
3: idea is, which one gets the first and iodine? And the, the steroids are it.
0: early because there's no reason not to give the steroids early. So the propranolol and dex. Exactly. Are the yes. And <coughs> then the only <coughs> other question <coughs> is, yeah. I think it, 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 a, the, if you give iodine, it causes like release. So, you're supposed to get a prophylactic so before the iodine. Yeah. So, it should go for propranolol, PTU, and then, PTU, and then, PTU, and then, then iodine. Is there a choice so for that? Yeah, yeah, yeah there is E. My would be E. And B- B- that is correct. As long as the pranolol is <laughs> first, because that treats the official, you know, the hyper-sympathetic stuff. And the PTU before you got
2: So, that's exactly what they said. Basically, it's difficult to clinically, um, diagnosis is clinical. There's no test to differentiate between thyroid storm and hyperthyroidism. Um, treatment for thyroid storm, you have to do the blockade of peripheral effects with beta inergics, blockade of synthesis of, with PTU or methamazole, or blockade of release with iodine or lithium, and general supportive care with steroids. Propanol is a drug of choice, peripherally because um, addition, uh, additional benefit is slowing the conversion of T4 to T3. Uh, PT blocks the enzyme thyroidoproxidase to inhibit thyroid hormone synthesis. Iodine is used to block the release of thyroid hormone. Steroids are used to prevent an adrenal crisis, which may be precipitated by the thyroid storm. And dexamethasone is a preferred steroid because it also blocks peripheral conversion of T4 to T3. So, Adina? <coughs>
0: Oh, so um, so the differentiating clinic what's the differentiating clinical feature between hyperthyroidism and thyroid storm? What's the differentiating clinical finding between hyperthyroidism and thyroid storm? Proptosis. Like proptosis? No, they all they fit. Fit. No. 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 confusion. Yeah. Alright, and what's the differentiating feature between heat uh, prostration and heat stroke? Confusion mental status. So just the worst of them have the confusion associated mm-hmm. with
3: them. Okay. Which
1: of the following statements regarding high altitude
2: So acute mountain sickness is a syndrome of nonspecific symptoms, uh, which which occurs when you go up to high altitudes. The most severe one is HACE, the high altitude cerebral edema, and high altitude peripheral edema, which is HAPE. HAPE accounts for most deaths on high altitude illnesses. HAPE is thought to result from exaggerated hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, leaking of capillary leakage. Early manifestations are decreased performance in cough, dry cough, which can lead to pincus sputum, severe respiratory distress, and death. EKG findings of HAPE are mostly right-sided, so it's right axis deviation, right bundle branch rock, right ventricular strain, tachycardia is common rather than bradycardia. And it can be treated with oxygenation, so treatment of choice would be to come down. Or if you can't do that, um, supplemental oxygen administration. And I guess if you have a portable hyperbaric chamber, that would be convenient. (laughs) 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 Um, do have (laughs) inflatable
0: portable hyperbaric (laughs) chambers that you basically inflate this tube. And then using a foot pump, you can actually pump more pressure into it and create a portable hyperbaric chamber.
2: You can't move the patient in it, but you can treat it. Mm -hmm. So nifedomy may be considered for prevention to reduce pulmonary artery pressure. If no other options are available, it may be considered for treatment. the picture, the actual better pictures would be this wow. and that. Oh, that's a good one. It's, it's one very one pretty. That hurts. So oh. that's the question. 23-year-old so man <laughs> with sickle cell
3: disease presents with blurred vision in after mild trauma. Examination of the eye reveals the following image. Okay, intraocular pressure is 30. Which of the following drugs might worsen his condition? alpha adrenergic yeah. uh, I want to say, say A. Uh, I'm just trying to think of why. That's a tough question. I think it's A. I can't. I think. I
0: I don't know.
2: It is A. And their reasoning is, is because carbonic anhydrase inhibitors will lower the aqueous pH in the anterior chamber, which can cause RBCs to sickle, which may clog the outflow through the trabecular meshwork, thus increasing your I- intraocular pressure. So um, that is why you should not use it. <laughs> so. So, basically, this patient has glaucoma, secondary hyphema. Sickle cell patients can spontaneously get hyphemas. The treatment for hyphemas for us would be basically management of the intraocular pressure that's increased and in an opto consult, emergent opto consult. The elevated IOP is treated with topical beta blockers, IV mannitol, topical um, alpha adrenergic agents, and carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. Just to use it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's contradictory in its answer. They said that's the treatment, but you have to be cautioned, have a lot of caution with using it. I think
1: those with sickle cell, uh, right? Right. But if you have glaucoma,
0: So, so there's, there's more more learning points to this than, than there. So the point is that they've got intraocular pressure is 30. Normal is 20, so they've got glaucoma. If you throw out this business of the sickler, you use all of, well, you use A, B, D, and E to treat glaucoma. Because carbonyl inhibitors decreases aqueous production, the mannitol dries you out and decreases everything pressure, including your oxygen alpha adrenergic agonist causes your pupil to alpha agonist yeah, I'm pretty bad. to to dilate and beta blocker also has and the beta blocker decreases anterior chamber pressure and the the, the, of the units that's a weird question alright go with what they said I next. think
1: alpha is the one that causes the um, I don't know the exact muscle I can't remember but it's the so the so body, body.
0: contracts and pulls it away from blocking the outflow tract. If you had, a, if you had an alpha agonist, which should dilate your pupil. No, it's not the sympathetic. I think it's the other, the parasympathetic symptoms. It's a,
3: it's muscar masquer- it's muscarinic.
0: Yeah, muscarinic. You guys know more about it than Go cool. ahead. All right. And that that's that that is mm-hmm. not a hyphema though. That's it's hyphema, it's partly way. a hyphema. Yeah, most of that's it it's white. So what is that called? Beyond, right? That's white size, so that implies that there's been a penetration and infection in the anterior gene. You wouldn't have white sauce The red obviously is blood, but most of it seems to be white plus. Uh which of the following
3: statements regarding sickle cells? what cells is reversible. it's not E, it's not D, staff is still the most common. Um I think it's s-
0: C. That's what I think.
2: It's B. It's B apparent. Well
0: circle so oh, trait, trait. not disease. Not disease. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what they say is yeah, if you have trait you only have mutations of the one globin chain. So Technically, you do have a normal lifespan. And hemoglobin S can bind oxygen, but when it de- deoxygenates, it sickles in shape. And sickling is reversible initially, then becomes permanent. And the sickle cells can lead to sludging and vaso-occlusive crisis. Um, the oxygen has been proven, has, is part of the management for vaso-occlusive pain crisis. However, it's never been proven to affect the incidence duration or severity of having a vasoclusive is much more common than salmonella. Speaking of salmonella, there's a salmonella outbreak. I don't know if you guys have
1: heard
0: about this. And mm-hmm. made products from Iowa, so it's here in California. Just gotta be aware. For your own personal usage mm-hmm. at home. <laughs> <laughs> we have one more resident, Randy, so we'll just
2: maybe do one more question.
3: The loser? year old with
0: search
2: reasoning is that, um, uh, this is RA, it's chronic, it's much more common in women. Uh, therapy includes prednisone, penicillamine, isothiropine, methotrexate, cyclosporine, sulfasalazine, and NSAIDs. Um, their reasoning is that if you have long-standing rheumatoid arthritis, you can develop degeneration of the transverse ligament of the dens, leading to instability of the atlantoaxial joint. So in this case, you should pro- indicate, you should have inline stabilization of the C-spine to prevent neurological injury
0: is what Dr. Geister um, uh, was saying. That the cervical spine, remember, we look like this, and he right. says people with tingling in their hands after they go through an operation to get their neck uh, extended. So whether you have rheumatoid arthritis or you just are old and have calcifications of your posterior longitudinal ligament, when you hyperextend your neck, that calcified ligament buckles into the back of the cord and causes a central cord syndrome that causes the, finger, the fingers to tingle so whether or not you have RA, if you're old and hyper-step the neck, you put those in the frontal cord at some risk, not great risk, but the RA patients are even worse because they're even less mobile. So there's nothing else in that stem, if you go back to this question. You could have answered the whole question by saying, 63-year-old woman with rheumatoid arthritis comes in septic and needs to be intubated. Which of the following are important? That's really the crux of this question, all the rest of the stuff. is just she's sick and she needs to be intubated because she's septic. So there's a whole bunch of extraneous information in the question. So, yep. for Bye the sake break. of time, I'm
2: we'll going to stop and watch me on the next lecture. Thank yeah. you. Two
3: minutes, guys, two minutes. Good job. We we'll
0: want we'll to give rushed to the, a day day the day day. whole
1: benefit
3: yeah. of her wonderful lecture. Thank yeah.
2: you.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>